Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and we are at the start of Chapter 4 of this podcast. Chapter 1 was about computer check proofs and formal methods. Chapter 2 was about functional programming. Chapter 3 was about the Curry-Howard isomorphism. And now we are going to talk about dependent types and using dependent types in programming. So we'll we'll have occasion to talk about um, sort of planning that somewhere along the way we'll talk about sort of the theory of dependent types a little bit because this is really an interesting topic too. But before we get to that, we should sort of talk about what dependent types are good for and how you could use them in your programming. And uh, and I have to tell you that it is uh, I'm driving home. It is 32 degrees Fahrenheit and raining. The f- trees are frozen, but it hasn't turned to snow yet, so it's interesting, um, crazy Midwest precipitation. Anyhow, uh, so what I wanted to talk about today was um, following up a little bit by, on the episodes that were sort of mistakenly <laughs> created as part of Chapter 3, whoops, sorry, episodes, um, that really should have been in Chapter 4, uh, a few episodes ago where I talked about, introduced the idea of dependent types and, and this kind of thing, and talked a little about the Curry-Howard isomorphism for first-order logic, and I want to return to this a little bit because there's some pretty interesting design choices out there as people try to design dependently typed programming languages or languages that have features like this. And so one one of the features you'll find in some languages is what they call indexed types. Now, I don't really know. Actually, I'm not quite sure if there's a good standard terminology because index types, that concept and the term is used in the context of things like Agda or other dependently, full-blown dependently type programming languages. But the usage I'm thinking of is more like what I told you about um, Tim Sherd's Omega language. And also, uh, you can find things like this in Haskell. Now, Haskell has been on a quest, and certain researchers, including my friend Stephanie Wark, have been on a quest to add dependent, full-blown, true dependent types to Haskell. And this is pretty awesome. Richard Eisenberg, who I got to meet and talk with, uh, I think it was ICFP 2018 in St. Louis, uh, he, he, these guys are very serious about trying and quite committed to trying to get dependent types full dependent types implemented in Haskell. And actually, it's funny though, even, but funnily enough, they're not going to have type theory. <laughs> um, I'll explain all this. There's, a, there's just a lot of interesting wrinkles to the story here. Um, if you recall though, we're basically talking about one of the basic scenarios where dependent types are considered by many to be helpful is in controlling and reasoning about properties of your data through the types and properties of your functions through the types as well. And the sort of classic example of this that I already mentioned is the vector type. So instead of having a polymorphic type for lists, like a list of A's for any type A that you want, in with index types, you can have instead a vector of A's of a particular length. You could say, I've got a vector of A's of length 35, or I could have a function that takes in a vector of A's of some length n and returns another vector of A's of length n. For example, if you wanted to do, uh, I mean, 
for a simple function, say, say you wanted to take a vector of natural numbers and you want to add 10 to every natural number in that vector and produce a new vector. Now, you would do that using map as a good functional programmer, but say, just for simplicity, imagine you're just writing this from scratch and you're going to write a function. It takes in a vector of nats of length n for any length n in that we might have, and it's going to return a new vector of nats of length n. And of course, the interesting thing about this is that now you get to express some properties of your code just through the types, right? Because here I've expressed the fact that the add 10 to the vector function is length preserving. Given a vector of, a, of nats of length n, it's going to produce another vector of nats of the exact same length n. You know, or I could express some other relationship, like maybe I wanted to duplicate every element in the vector. So maybe I say, I'm going to take a vector of a's of length n and return a vector of a's of length 2 times n. Right? And now, not only do you get some interesting information about what your function does, some interesting compile time information about what this function does in the type, but of course, once you put it in the type, then the type checker is going to check it. And so you can check that your function really does satisfy this property. And that is really quite amazing. And uh, I haven't I haven't played with this kind of thing in Haskell much, but I have done quite a bit in Agda. And Agda is remarkably good at figuring out and sort of um, checking your code. You can, for a lot of simple code with vectors, for example, you can write the exact same function that you wanted to write on lists. And Agda will just manage to see that, yeah, it has this more informative type about vectors. So that's quite amazing. I didn't actually try this sort of sort of uh, duplicate every element in a vector example uh, that just came to my mind now. Uh, but but many, many examples. I have um, here at Iowa, we, we produce something called the Iowa Agda Library, which is a library. It's like a drop-in standard library for Agda. Uh, it, it, there is a, a true standard library for Agda, and it's not meant to be a competitor of that. It's just sort of geared at some different uh, different design goals. And in that, there's a vector uh, module in there, and there's just a long list of basic operations on lists, but one and the same piece of code can be ported over from list to vectors, and without adding any proofs or you know, proving things about how the lengths are changing or anything like that, just the form of the recursion and the way that the indices sort of change and are broken down and manipulated, it just works out that Agda can just tell that they all have these sort of more interesting types without the programmer having to do any extra work except state those types. This is really quite awesome. And what I wanted to say today, and as I head home through this strange, really, really cold rain, uh, is that there, one, of these, one of the uses for dependent types is this kind of um, putting some compile time information into your types about, the, about data. And then writing functions that whose types then let you see how the, those that compile time information is manipulated, you know, by the function, or I guess I should say how the the uh, well, you see, what, I hope you see what I mean, and and that's with the example I gave. I hope it's clear. So, in languages like Haskell, even before Haskell went uh, went down the path, uh, I guess you could say this was some kind of early step down the path to having dependent types. 
they have this this sort of facility, and they have the ability to have data types at the kind level. So they call them data kinds. So more or less, it means we can. It, it's really just a sort of a technical way of doing what I had mentioned before of carving out. We're, we're gonna, you know, with this approach in Haskell prior to the dependently typed Haskell work, that with this approach, you can index your types. So you can have a vector of A's of length N, but N is not a program expression the same way that, you know, three or hello world or whatever would be. It's coming from a different syntactic category, which is kept completely hermetically separate from the program expressions. And so that that's the sort of this general idea that I could have some kind of domain for these indices to types that doesn't have to be the programming language expressions. And that can simplify things quite a bit because now I don't have to worry about funny questions about like, what happens if I have a program expression that raises an exception or runs forever or some strange thing that shows up in my type, okay? And so it's, it's in some ways you could, you have a lot more control. You can just say, well, no, 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 no. I don't want to let that, that kind of crazy stuff show up in my types. I just have some very simple domain which I can control a lot more than I want to control my programming language. And those are the kind of things that can show up in my types. In fact, one of the, an early language design like this, maybe, maybe the first one was dependent ML. I guess I'd have to double check, but I'm, Ah, I'm, I'm sorry, maybe I'm going off, off the rails here. I might be wrong. I, I don't know. I mean, the name makes it sound like it's a fully dependently typed version. And I don't know whether it was, it did have program expressions showing up, up in types. But I'm, well, anyway, it was an early design that, that definitely emphasized the use of indexed types. So, but in Haskell with data kinds, you can, you know, they're the separate domain the separate syntactic category where you're drawing these indices from is actually at the type level. So it's kind of weird. Like, I just need to find another universe of, of expressions that I'm going to let me, myself use in, to index my types. And Haskell says, don't worry, we'll, we'll find that. We, we won't create kind of a new one off to the side. We'll just let you use um, more interesting type expressions will be these kind of indices. And that's a, that's a pretty interesting design decision. And uh, so... Haskell has this kind of thing. And the interesting thing is, so you can search, just look for data, Haskell data kinds, and you'll find some online information about this. And you can do quite a bit of pretty cool stuff with that. The, the one thing that you can't do is directly is have ta your types depend on program expressions. So saying something like, I want to write a function that takes in n and returns a vector of a's of length n. I would have to take in an a probably too. Uh, this kind of thing you can't really do because then the n is really a truly an input to the function. The function is going to take different action depending on what n is. It's going to try to construct a vector of that length. So it's going to have to look at n and make this, you know, build a bigger vector for a bigger n. So that's not, you know, that's really having dependent types. It's not just having index expressions from some possibly different syntactic category. So, and the trick to getting around that limitation is what they call singleton types. And maybe I'll just leave it here for that for now. There's more to say about this. 
I actually kind of forgot about singleton types until I was in a rare act of preparation, brushing up on this topic a little bit for, for talking with you about it. So um, I knew about singleton types long ago, but I haven't thought about them for quite a while. So uh, maybe we'll talk about that uh, in the next episode. Okay, thank you again for listening.